I first see it as soul language and it's speaking to me rather than I'm looking at something that's created visually or formally or whatever art history books talk about. And welcome to the 36th episode of Pine Copper Line, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. You may have noticed that this episode came along a little bit sooner than usual. As my way of showing you all love in the time of corona, I'm going to be releasing an episode every week, just to help make us feel a bit more connected in our time of social isolation and online printmaking courses. And speaking of feeling more connected, I'd love to give a shout out to a PCL sponsor. That's the Print Council of Australia. They're a not-for-profit member organization that promotes contemporary Australian printmaking, including artist books, zines, and other works on paper. They also publish a quarterly art journal called Imprint, which is one of the few publications worldwide dedicated exclusively to the graphic arts. To learn more about the Print Council, how you can join or submit to imprint, see their website at printcouncil.org.au. Printmaking forever, shun the non-believers, join the party. But maybe through FaceTime for the next little while. I also can't let an intro go by without a shout out to one of our recent Patreon supporters, George Rickerson. Thank you so very much, George, for your support in keeping Pine Copper Lime on those digital airways. You are the very, very best. My guest this week is Killjoy. And let me tell you, print friends, this one is a doozy. You will quickly learn that there are no small questions with Joy. We recorded this interview right when I was in the middle of the bushfires here in Australia, so there's some talk about the chaos going on around me at the time, but upon re-listening, I realized that it truly could not be more applicable to what's going on right now throughout the world. Our chat together is a bit of a heavy hitter. We talk about the systems in place that attempt to make us consumerist zombies, end-of-life care, and the destruction of the earth but also the incredible transformative power of art, the mind-expanding experiences of travel, and little children in Honduras befriending a frog in one of Joy's murals. So sit back, relax, and prepare to go on that inward journey with Killjoy. Hi, Joy. How's it going? Hi, it's going good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for joining me. I am really really looking forward to talking with you I have thank you likewise yeah I've known your work for a few years now and I've always been really really drawn not only to your aesthetic but your content and I love how your work is so beautiful and I feel like it gives just enough to add a bit of mystery as well so I am (laughs) thrilled to maybe unpack some of that mystery with you here today. Um, That's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Um, But I'm hoping kind of before we dive in, if maybe you could introduce yourself a little bit and tell us what you do as an artist, just so if anyone isn't totally familiar with you and your work, they get a little bit of an overview before we start talking about some of the bigger ideas. Yeah. So, um, my artist name is Killjoy. Um, I go by Joy. Joy is actually my real name, and Killjoy is a play off of my birth name. Um, I make prints and paint murals. I'm interested also in sculpture and puppetry and textile work. Mm. Um, but my main medium right now is working with prints and, and painting. So... When you were growing up, can you tell us a little bit about that? And if you were always an artsy kid or did you go to museums or how did art fit into your life as as a small person? Well, I grew up in West Texas um, in Odessa and 
there isn't really a lot to do out there. West Texas is just flat desert for the most part. And there's not a lot of museums. There's not a lot of art. Uh, there's a lot of sky. So you, mm-hmm. if you're in West Texas, when you look out into the horizon, it's about 95% sky. Wow. And um, I was really influenced by that. I was always craving to be outside. I really wanted to be around nature because I felt like um, when you live in a desert, it sometimes feels like there's not a lot around. I wanted to see what was out in the world. Looking at the work you do now, nature is really present in your work and animals are really present. And I'd love to dive into that maybe just a little bit later. Um, Mm -hmm. But just so people kind of know maybe a little bit more of your background. So you were growing up in West Texas and then did you end up going to, to school for art? Well, I have always been interested in drawing and in art. And um, I I went to a, a magnet school and they emphasized a lot of art practice. So I, I started making books at a young age, mm-hmm. which influenced me as an adult. And um, I was the... I was one of those kids that the other kids would always ask them to draw a dog or a rose. Those were the two most popular ones. <laughs> um, and I did, I did start focusing on art in high school. I, I started doing a lot of art classes and then I went to college and then I studied printmaking at university of North Texas. And so you, you grew up in West Texas, went to school in Texas, but I definitely associate something about your practice with travel. Um, you seem to often be in in many different places, but I know you've done a lot of work in Mexico. And I think most people who are interested in contemporary printmaking know that Mexico is at the moment, and I think traditionally as well, but I think we're just seeing more of it now with this... Um, you know, Instagram and everything like that, that it is Mm -hmm. an incredible place for printmaking. So Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear about just your experience in the printmaking scene there and how it influenced your printmaking practice. Yeah, you know, I I mean, to take it back to West Texas, um, there's something about West Texas that when you're there, it's it's uh, really slow. The rhythm of life is very slow. And in fact, the town that I grew up in Odessa is, is, is referred to as slow death. Um, and so when I, when I graduated high school at 18, I had a deep desire to just get out of West Texas. Um, but because I was 18, I wasn't quite ready to just um, move out of the state. So I moved to San Antonio and I was there for two years. And then I moved to Denton, Texas, and I was there for about two, three years. And then after Denton, I moved to Portland, Oregon, and I was there for three years. Um, And that was a big shift because from Texas to Oregon, the landscape is so different. Mm -hmm. And And I always knew that the environment of wherever I was was influencing my inner worlds. And then moving from... Portland, Oregon to Mexico City was an even more drastic change. Um, You know, Mexico City is a fascinating city. It's a world-class city Mm -hmm. and it has a lot of history and the history there is very heavy. So when you're in Mexico City, Mexico in general, but particular Mexico City because of its um, deep and also dark history. The energy there is electric. And even when I have been out of Mexico City, as soon as I'm in Mexico City, there is this surge of creative energy that goes through me. And I think I'm channeling the history of the land and the people there. So when you're talking about that history and that darkness, you're referring to the that colonial history, I'm assuming, and how Mexico City is built on the bones of Tenochtitlan, which was one of the places where you see European colonialism. Is that correct? Absolutely. I am definitely referring 
to that period of history. Mm -hmm. I I think just in general, human history, the human species brings a a darkness, but also a lightness to where they go. Part of that darkness is suffering. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of suffering where there are humans. You know, we we live in a time where there's still a lot of suffering. Um, Absolutely. But I feel like we can't even begin to comprehend what it was like to be a human 400 years ago when that, that daily suffering, that kind of suffering that you would have in life, the, the diseases that people still had that you could catch, the, the loss of life, the loss of the lives of children, um, the mm-hmm. uncertainty, the especially as 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 women, the absolutely no real control over your lives or control over the amount of children that you have, which of course is yeah. extremely dangerous. And there are plenty of women who still live that in 2020 as well. I should I should make sure to point out, but as women who who grow up in America, it seems almost incomprehensible when you really dive into the day-to-day life of the last few hundred years of what it was like. Yeah, and and I think the heaviness that anyone who is in Mexico City or visits Mexico City can feel, it dates back it dates back to um, the beginning of human civilization there, even with the Aztec empires and the way that they ran their societies. You know, there was a lot of human sacrifice and for whatever reasons they held in their culture that they had human sacrifice that's you know, that's in that time, but that carries uh, an emotional legacy, mm-hmm. you know, in the land and the land remembers. And because we are just visitors on this land, we are able to tap into that, that ancient memory. So even from those beginnings and then into the time of colonization, which just brought about more blood, more warfare, more unnecessary suffering, the land holds that memory and that history that when we're there, we can't help but channel that energy. And it's not all, it's not all dark energy. There's a lot of, there's so much magic in Mexico. Mexico is one of the most magical places I've ever been to. And so we also, we just channel the whole spectrum of universal energy. Yeah, I think a lot of that that human sacrifice was done for the earth. It was believed that that blood actually fed the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it would make sense that she would remember all of that because it yeah. all, yeah, went, went went right into the, the ground that the buildings in the three Michelin star restaurants are sitting on now uh, <laughs> <laughs> in Mexico it's City. True. Yeah. It's true. It's true. So sort of speaking, I think, of that colonial time, one of the things that I have admired so much about your work is that it is political, but not in a hit you over the head with this kind of political. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's not like, like, here's Trump on the toilet. Like, you know, like, it's like, I feel like... Uh, Which that stuff is funny. It's, it's funny. It, it's, that is it's- so cathartic and it absolutely has its place. <laughs> But I feel like the way you use kind of visuals to to be political has a, a subtleness to it. And one of the ways in particular I was thinking about your figures that show up that have their faces in their chests. And that is, of course, the way that, that Europeans for hundreds of years thought that people looked like who lived in parts of the world they hadn't explored yet, who, li- who mm-hmm. were these sort of wild men, you know, quote unquote wild men. And that image just instantly brings to mind all of these Eurocentric ideologies and their views about pre-colonial cultures. And it's just such a beautiful and articulate shorthand for that. So I'm hoping that maybe you could speak to if this is something that you do really consciously or does it just kind of come out in sort of in the way that your ideas express themselves? I have a political viewpoint, you know, and and I that does come across in my work, but I don't feel that it's my place, um, as you as you had phrased, to hit anyone over the head with my viewpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, the way that I perceive the world and the way that I perceive humans in the world will come across in my work because I think about it a lot. 
so for the themes that I use, you know, you mentioned the face and the body and these older themes that have been recurrent throughout art history. I do feel drawn in particular to to indigenous art because I feel that these tribal people, because of their point in history and because there was such an oral history, I feel that this the art made by indigenous communities is closer to the source. And so I draw so much inspiration from that history in general first off that it that these stories are spread orally and then they're put into pictures so to me there's just less divisions between making that art and the source where i believe all art comes from what it sounds like to me you're speaking to is one of my absolute favorite aspects of art which is its its ability to get into the intuitive and to get into half-remembered histories and feelings and really bypass this analytical black and white. And it's just this super narrow, narrow slice of the human experience that Mm -hmm. we've all been socialized into people who have been, who've been raised in, you know, an American educational system and art and visual culture can bypass that. When I look at this art, I call it, I don't even call it art. I call it soul language Mm. because as you said, it speaks to intuition. It speaks to feelings and human feelings are some of our greatest teachers, you know, and there's such a stigma to having feelings, Mm -hmm. but feelings and intuition exist anciently within us. And so when I look at art that speaks to me, it doesn't register in my mind as art. I first see it as soul language and it's speaking to me rather than I'm looking at something that's created visually or formally or whatever art history books talk about. This idea that that feeling is somehow not a legitimate form of knowledge is so unfortunate and yeah. uh, and it's something that were fed and I think particularly as people who are socialized female get fed you know don't be emotional you're being irrational don't annoy men with your emotions is definitely a message that that we not only receive from society but we give it as advice to each other like I know you're upset with him but you know guys don't like crazy chicks (laughs) that kind of attitude Mm -hmm. that's language that tells you to ignore your intuition you Mm -hmm. know and definitely as women living in this society, we do get told to shut down our intuition a lot daily, you know, mm-hmm. spectrum of emotions are so wide. And there is a stigma against darker emotions. But yet, in my life, my greatest teachers have been the emotions of grief, despair, fear, and especially anger. Mm-hmm. And I feel that these things are, they're expressed so beautifully through indigenous art. And the way that it translates, it may translate from a place of anger or a place of grief, but when it's actually laid out, it's transformed. That energy is transformed. That emotion has taught the lesson that it needs to teach. It completely shuts down this this narrative that I feel like is very 21st century American which is the ultimate goal is to never feel bad ever. That's what a good life looks like. Which is crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, but that's just not the human experience. (laughs) And we're not, you know, living this short life here on this beautiful earth to just experience the good things because how can that even exist without the darker side of things? And so this exploration of emotions, of intuition, of inner world, that blends with my political ideology. And it just comes out to what it is on what, what you see on paper. And so when it comes to some of the specific imagery you use as well, you draw on your personal cultural background, which is Filipino. Is that correct? Definitely. You know, so I, I did start my, uh, I guess you could say professional art practice in Mexico. And I was heavily, heavily influenced by 
the graphic culture of Mexico, which is deep and strong and intense. And Mexico and the Philippines, they they share a bond. They were both colonized by Spain. And there's a lot of similarities between Mexico and the Philippines. So I've talked about this before. You know, I've lived in Mexico, Mexico City, for six years. And there's a difference between living somewhere and reading about somewhere. So if I'm in the U.S. and I am studying Mexican art, Mexican history, it's going to be very different experience than if I lived in Mexico and never even go to a museum. My understanding will be more full when I live in that culture. And I, I, I'm bringing this up because I, I've lived in Mexico. I'm, I'm familiar with Mexican art and Mexican culture. And as opposed to the Philippines, where my family is from the Philippines, my, my roots, my blood are in the Philippines. I visited the Philippines a handful of times, but I've never lived there. And that has always weighed heavy on me because I am so invested in connecting to my culture, yet I have not lived there. It drives me to research, to explore Filipino history, especially pre-colonial history when it would not even be considered the Philippines. So I think part of that bringing Filipino culture, Filipino themes, Filipino folklore into my work is this desire to explore where my bloodline comes from. Do you think that you'll have an opportunity to to live there? I, I have thought about this a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and I would like to spend extended amounts of time in the Philippines for sure. The way that the world is moving right now, I find it difficult to settle anywhere. Mm. And that's where I am currently. I'm not settled anywhere. And, and the idea of settling on an island when our world is expressing so much turmoil is a little scary. But of course, I do want to spend extended periods there. That's really interesting that you said being on an island would be a bit scary. I would almost think that it would be the opposite. You could cloister yourself a little bit on an island from all of the oh, turmoil, I but mean, maybe that's that would... where the scary part is. <laughs> no, that would that's the dream. I mean, my <laughs> my dream is to be, you know, on a Philippine island, there's hundreds, and to be on a Philippine island and in my hut that I made myself, just working on art, <laughs> that would be the dream. But then I'm also confronted with global warming and the mm. fact that Philippines is one of the fastest disappearing places on the planet, and that the Tal volcano just exploded a week ago, and and all neighboring cities are covered in ash, and just the realities of the destruction that the world is expressing that ultimately expresses the destruction within ourselves as well, since we are just another expression of the world. Even to that idea, there's a light, there's a light and a dark side of it. We are burning ourselves and we are just pining for war and, and, and more and more and more. We are, we are overcome with the infliction of greed and that is definitely damaging the world. And, and we're using verb to burn, which is interesting because while we are burning each other, we are burning the world, ultimately fire brings about birth. Fire destroys and in destruction and in death, there comes birth. And so I'm hoping that right now, you know, the world feels crazy and scary, but hopefully, hopefully we're also coming on the dawn of a death of the old and a welcoming of the new. You just gave me full body goosebumps, Joy. <laughs> I love what you're saying so much because it is so easy to get pulled into this narrative of the immediate and seeing here in Australia, um, Tim and I have mm -hmm. been relatively safe with everything going on, but... Um, mm -hmm. You know, we had a day a couple of weeks ago where there was so much smoke in the air that you couldn't see across the street. And so mm -hmm. we spent a day sort of, I think it was actually just New Year's Eve, which is just a dark way to, to bring in that that change. And 
we, um, you know, we spent the day holed up in the house with rags stuffed in the cracks and mm-hmm. um, with our housemates, with the news on, just waiting to hear if there was a fire near us. We had bags packed to go and you're just sitting there waiting and like looking at this 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 dark orange sky mm-hmm. and it's it's a really embodied experience that is dark and scary and it feels so immediate and um confronting and un- inescapable yeah but when Tim and I were talking about how sort of scary it is, one of the things I said, I was like, I was like, well, you know, really the worst thing that happens is we all die. <laughs> and, and it was actually kind of a comfort, you know, because mm-hmm. it's, it's sort of like, oh, because of course, when we talk about saving the earth, what we talk about is saving ourselves. Absolutely. The earth is going to be fine. (laughs) Like if we, when we all die out, she's just going to start over again. And, and you, you know, people who I've talked to who have driven through areas that have burned horribly here in Australia, even though it's just a few weeks ago, they said, you know, you're already seeing new green. You're already seeing new life. Yes. It's, it's this idea that we get so caught up in this this fear of this immediacy and this darkness and not seeing that broader worldview that's sort of like, if, if we're not advanced enough to save ourselves, it's like the earth is like self-cleaning. <laughs> I know it sounds so dark, but I don't know if that makes sense. I mean, it makes perfect sense. And, you know, as we're talking about the what's happening in the earth is just a reflection of what's happening in our inner world. Like our outer world only expresses our inner world. And right now our inner worlds, we, with the system that is in place around the world, you know, we are so disconnected from self. We are encouraged to be disconnected from self and disconnected from source and disconnected from each other. And so how can you live in a healthy way when there's so much disconnection going on. And so that's, that's acting up, that's acting up in, in being aggressive in in greed, in war, in this constant capitalist gain and immediacy that you're talking about. You know, when people want things, they want it now. When people want change, they want it now, but change is upon us. Right. And with the, with the burning down of things like in, in, in forests, there are some seeds that grow into trees that they cannot be sprouted unless that they are burned, unless that they are opened by fire. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's a scary time. But change is scary, and change is happening. Yeah, that it's this is this is just the image that that came to my head. In tarot cards, the card mm. of death isn't mm. a bad card. It's not. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean doom and destruction. It just means change. Yes. uh absolutely i i i don't view time as as linear and so that means that i don't view birth and death as linear following death comes birth and Mm -hmm. oh god there's so much dying around us (laughs) you know which 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 is scary it's scary um but i think it's important within that fear like within the political and the social and the environmental instability to keep in mind this idea of what a brighter future can look like. We have to have that in mind. We have to have something that we grow towards and not just act out of fear of what's burning around us. And I think that decisions that come from fear that are based solely on kind of a animalistic self-preservation which is inherently selfish as well and and that Mm. if if you don't have that that hope and that wider vision yes that's when you see people shoving other people out of the way so they can get in the lifeboat yeah but on a global scale 
Yeah, you know, and and that that comes back to the pre- a previous question with talking about how my political ideology comes about in my art is that you know the the Trump sitting on the toilet that stuff is funny and we we need near knee jerker art as well mm-hmm. you know we, we we angry art can be cathartic to look at but on the other side we also need an idea for a brighter future we need an idea of what a brighter future can look like and how to construct it and that that stuff comes before this modern time that that stuff comes from the source and so that's where my sim my symbols come from and my my themes and my ideology also comes from so i mix i mix these themes of found from source with my political ideology and i i prefer it to be uplifting as opposed to doomsday i can definitely see that in your work when you say it so explicitly because it's not um it's not over the top optimistic peace Mm -hmm. and love sunshine lollipops and rainbows (laughs) everywhere Uh, but it is does have a lightness to it as well it accepts the darkness and shows a bit of lightness I would say thank you thank you for saying that that's something I'm working on in myself is to embrace both the lightness and the darkness and in that embrace to find the balance between the two because you can't lean too much into one side because you have to feed all parts of yourself that's what makes you a full human being mm-hmm. yeah and that idea as you as you said before of there can be no light without dark it's mm-hmm. if you if you existed in a state of happiness completely you would never know that you were happy and absolutely <laughs> yeah <laughs> nor nor could you transcend to to deeper levels of satisfaction and contentment mm-hmm. and and true joy you know if you don't have something to to challenge or to juxtapose against how could you even transcend into those deeper layers of of knowing absolutely and it's that classic story of the buddha you know he's 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 raised in a palace mm-hmm. and he never sees he's yeah. he's cloistered from from death and illness and old age back when he was just Siddhartha and mm-hmm. he had to leave the palace to come to understand the complexity of of human experience and eventually go on the path to enlightenment is to understand that. So, well, I love, I love that you bring up Buddha because I am reading Siddhartha by Herman Hest right now. And, and I read it. This is my second time reading it. Uh, It's just such a beautiful book on the journey of life. And, and, you know, you're saying like when, when he was just experiencing being rich and then he had to, he had to go to the other side, so he did. He went all the way to the other side, um, and had nothing, had no possessions. And then he went back again, and into the middle. And you know, you just kind of go to one extreme till you find your balance, and that's what the world is doing right now. To use American politics as a microcosm, we finally get a person of color as the president. Mm-hmm. Yes, and then. Uh-huh. Oh, it seems all oh, that rubber band <laughs> yeah. snapped back, you know. Oh yeah. It's definitely. hopeful that that it's the swing of the pendulum and each time it swings one direction, it has to come back. It can't it can't f- forever continue. Like gravity will will pull on it and and maybe over time just like a physical pendulum it eventually will rest in the middle. You know, I I think you're absolutely right. I think like we if we've seen the the trajectory of of precedence throughout history you know it swings one way and then it swings the other way and then it swings one way and then it swings the other way and then everything that was established beforehand gets wiped out and then again and again and again and then this kind of fruitless history is just repeating itself so i i do think in the 
coming times like the the rubber band will snap the pendulum will swing one way but i'm kind of hoping that the pendulum just collapses in general (laughs) i think wouldn't that be yeah (laughs) if we could just stop the ride and get off that would be the ideal can can we just like wipe everything off the table I'd love to ask you about, after we've just kind of done this this deep dive on humans, I want to make sure that I have time to ask you about nature and animals and the place that they take up in your work. I've mentioned some teachers throughout this conversation, and, and one great teacher that I've mentioned is grief. Grief has been a great teacher to me in my life, and the greatest teacher perhaps of all is Earth. Earth has so much to teach. When we look at Earth, when we look at the microcosms of Earth, we can see the whole universe reflected back in an ant colony. I love ants, mm. for example. Whenever I am feeling overwhelmed by what's going on in the world or by my own inner world, or it's, it's nature that I turn to. So you step out into nature, you take a walk, and you can't really be in nature and and be angry. And if you do enter nature angry, it subsides because you you see your place in the greater scheme of things. Nature is the greatest teacher. And so when you have such a great teacher and there is no perfect teacher quite like Earth, you honor Earth by expressing their teachings. So, you know, I'm interested in in herbal plants and medicinal plants. Um, I just did a whole mural featuring psilocybin mushrooms Mm. because they are a beautiful teacher. And unfortunately, in the U.S., those kinds of teachers, the, the, the plants of power have such a stigma, which is really unfortunate for people who believe in that or who who have not been educated further because because those those plants have so much to teach. I mean, if, if you can if you can go into a botanical garden or a curated garden, it's really difficult for me to be in gardens. It actually kind of, it irks me out a lot to mm-hmm. see such manufactured uh, environments. Um, but if you can appreciate a garden in Versailles or wherever, then you can also have an understanding that there, that the whole wide world of plants that all of them are teachers all of them have something to offer and knowledge to offer you can't find in a manufactured world um one of the the areas of the world that i'm really interested in is end of life care i just always have been Hmm. and of course one of the things that i think is pretty common knowledge now but just what it reminded me of is that when people are facing death and um, mm-hmm. imminently, because of course we're all we're all facing death every minute, but um, when it's when it when it's really at the door, that you know experiences that people can have with, as you said, those teacher plants, dramatically decreases anxiety about dying. Yeah, because people who take them and then particularly with some sort of a guided experience. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, like with with some kind Mm -hmm. of a a shaman or a guide. The anxieties they have about leaving this narrative of, I I am my body, time is linear, I am only me, you know, all Mm -hmm. of these things that it it can kind of deconstruct um, Mm -hmm. and shatter that ego of the self. All of a sudden, the anxiety about actually dying is almost always completely lifted. It has something like nearly 100% success rate. Yeah. And and yet, as you say, it's actually, unless under very controlled circumstances in a lab, it's illegal to do it. People are trying to rob people of that experience, which I think is just one of the cruelest things I've ever heard of. Particularly... If someone just has like weeks to live, mm-hmm. what are you what are you worried about? Like, what are you? Why are you keeping that from them? Oh, Randy, you just opened up so many topics. I'm like rolling <laughs> up my sleeves. <laughs> the, the thing is, is that it's not a mistake. You know that these these teachers, these plants of power, they have 
such ancient and deep knowledge to bestow upon us that that only they as in their particular teachings can teach us you know i mean this sort of this sort of universal knowledge is is actually already it already exists within us but the particular doors that these plants of power can open they are the ones that open it and the thing is that it's not a mistake that they're forbidden it's not a mistake that these teachers that lead into deeper consciousness are illegal mm-hmm. you know what i mean that's a whole nother podcast. That's- yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm right there with you. And yeah, it's just, I feel like, yeah, the, the shorthand is, is basically just if you let people tear down the, the narratives of you need that big house and you need this clothes and you need your, you need your six pack abs for your Bali vacation for your Instagram profile and never be alone with your thoughts. Like never, never stop pursuing, never stop needing money. That's not good for the powers that be. That's not. Absolutely. Let's, <laughs> let it burn. Let yeah. It burn. Let those ideas burn for sure. I want them to transform. And, you know, that's something that I, I hope to express in art. Not this perfect, not this idea of what even perfection looks like or even what being an adult looks like. You know, I, I say this all the time. One of my least favorite terms is this idea of adulting. I don't, I don't even know if people use that anymore. But what does that even mean? What does that mean to be an adult? That you own your own house, you own your own car, your own television, your, all your own things. Everything is individual, right? And, and you work the grind all day long. Like, is that what it means to be an adult? Because that's not what it means to be a human being. Mm-hmm. That this idea that somehow becoming a fully formed human means that you're following the rules perfectly. <laughs> Absolutely. The rules, the rules set for you. And I think what we forget, what we forget is that there's, we are the ones living our lives, right? Like, why do we need our own everything and the money and the six pack and what, whatever bullshit, <laughs> you know? Yeah. We're trained to believe that we want. Like the comfort of living in the U.S., it scares me. It scares me a lot. And I'm not saying that everybody is comfortable, but I'm saying that this lifestyle, this comfortable lifestyle that is promoted and violently sustained within the U.S. is terrifying to me. People get comfortable. People get too comfortable. And what happens when you're comfortable? Then you you start to accept things that are unacceptable. And, and not like this is not even talking about the like the awful atrocities going on within the u.s but also like the atrocity of not choosing your own life Mm -hmm. of of being told that you need this and that and this to be a successful happy person and this is what this is what your peers will look up to you for it's it's really sad you know, you have to you have to go to a school that you have to go into debt for, so you then have to get a job, so you're paying that debt off forever, and that yes. whole ecosystem that yes. is always keeping satisfaction just out of reach. Um, so you'll you'll you're you're too busy trying to survive to to question the system, so you don't have energy at the end of the day to that's be angry that's absolutely it that's absolutely it <laughs> yeah yeah um i'd love to though just to, to to talk about the way art fits into all of this art as a communicator and particularly public art because while you do a lot of relief printmaking you're also a muralist while prints are so personal you hold them in your hand you keep them in a drawer you hold them close to your face I just love to hear you speak about working also on these kind of big public forums. Going back to to my greatest teacher in life, which is Earth, something that Earth has taught me as being the creator of everything is just that, is to create. And to create is a godly act. And when you create, you it is a expression of your own divinity. Creation is mm-hmm. is godly. Mm-hmm. That's why that's why mothers are so divine, really. I don't know how else to put it. They're, they're goddesses because that is the one of the ultimate forms of creation. And so art is 
a mimic of that is a mimic of the great creator, which is earth. And so I, I bring that up because of something you first said about why we even make art, right? And what brought me into public art is something is kind of the similar thing that brought me into printmaking. You know, when we talk about printmaking, you can't talk about printmaking without talking about printmaking community. Right. And that's a really beautiful coexistence between um, printmaking community and the actual printmaking medium. And the same can be true for public art. So what brought me into public art was the community. And I really love the people who are getting down on the streets because just like printmakers, you know, they have, they have something that they want to express and they just do it. And I really love that, that self pace, that self taught, practice of just wanting to get down and do it because you want to not because something somebody is telling you that you have to do it not because you even learned it in school and I definitely have my own thoughts on on learning art in school but that is one thing that has drawn me into public art it's people Mm -hmm. without any formal education that just want to express something anything you know and what's so beautiful about public art is that it's a disruption in the regular programming of buy, 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 consume, 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 right? Because when we look out into the the cityscape, what do we see? We see billboards, we see ads, like we just, everywhere we look, it's constantly, we're constantly being told that we're not good enough, that we need to buy something to be good enough. Oh, just kidding. You're not good enough again. And then the cycle continues. And what's so beautiful about public art is that it's not about that. It's not about consumerism. It's not about selling you some bullshit product. It's just, you know what? As simple as somebody wanting to write their name on a wall to just show that at one point in life that they existed, like that is why I'm so drawn to public art because it is a disruption in the regular fucked up programming that we receive. And, and so when I do think about what I want to put on a wall, um, it's not that different from what I think about when I want to carve. Cause ultimately I, you know, I, the themes that I like to talk about are um, cultivating your inner world, uh, taking care of your outer world. And so that comes across in both the prints and the murals that I paint for sure. Mm -hmm. And another thing that when you're talking about the public art is that it also breaks down this idea of access to art. You have to be able to afford to get in a museum or if the museum's free, you need to be able to work a job or you can go to a museum, you know, nine to five, basically, or mm-hmm. you need to feel comfortable in that space sort of socially and all these different things, whereas mm-hmm. public art is given away and almost by its nature, ephemeral as well, 99% yes. of the time. I love being out on the street all day. It's such a different experience, like truly, in fact, the way that I like to get to know a city is uh, walking around pasting up a city. It's so different mm-hmm. than when you're walking around shopping, but also like even being on a wall, even being on a wall, like being in the same spot for a few days at a time, right? You got you get to see like what's going on in this part of the world, in this little corner of the street, like all of the regulars and all of the passerbys and the different interactions that go on and how people receive the art. And, you know, sometimes it's not going to be received well and it's in that person's power to uh, go over it, to, to spray it up or paint a, a bucket of paint on it if they want, you know, whatever. But it's so satisfying to be on the street and to be interacting with the people who will see this art. One of my favorite memories, perhaps for my whole life, I think I'm going to remember this, is when I was painting in Honduras. We were traveling from village to village in the mountains. We were, job- we were traveling with this indigenous organization. And one of the walls I painted was on the side of an elementary school. And so the whole day while I'm painting, you know, the kids are coming through and they get to just talk to me and ask me, what is that? I was painting a planet with a river running through it. And there were little, there were frogs along this river. And the reason why I was painting that was because in this community called Rio Blanco, 
they were protecting the river and from big government intervention projects. And the river for these indigenous communities is their way of life. And if you if you dam the river, then you you dam their way of life. And so while I was painting this, you know, the kids would ask me like, what do the frogs represent? Well, frogs represent life and they are bringers of life. And that's also what water represents. And, you know, when I was finally finished with this mural, the one of the most uh, grateful moments I had you know, again, it, it's a it's a little planet with a river running through it, and then frogs on on the bank of the river. And when I had finished painting it, and I saw the kids would just pass by it every day. When they passed by it, they the frogs were painted at kid level. So when they passed by it, they would like slap the frogs as they walked oh. by it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I love and, that. It warmed my heart. I was interesting because I was thinking about like this dichotomy of printmaking being personal and public art being public, but it's actually public art is so personal too because you can interact with it and because it's in your daily space. And as people interact with it, whether it's touching it and the paint rubs off or as you say, maybe writing their name on it, it becomes a part of the fabric of that community of the day-to-day comings and goings. And that's so, so nice and, and such a beautiful way to, to put art into people's lives who may not interact with it otherwise. Yeah. I, I think that art in whatever medium it is, if it's print, if it's public, it, it does have the power to transform and What's so amazing about public art is that you know, a print a print has the power to transform for sure. I have a print from Felix Valaton, who it's just you know his style is so graphic. It's so black and white, and I've had that since I was a kid, and it influenced me and it made me want to explore printmaking, right? And and that's powerful. And and what's so amazing about public art is that you can see like just this space that you know, people just pass by and take for granted. And then when you put something on it, you put an image, suddenly it transforms the space. And then, mm-hmm. and then because it transforms the space, whenever you're interacting in the space or just passing through the space, your, your thoughts are transformed, even in the slightest way. And that's an amazing thing, mm-hmm. especially when that thing is not telling you just to consume. Yeah. If you ever start to think about the amount of visual static that is dedicated to telling you to consume, particularly in an urban setting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's boggling. It's just, it's all nonsense. It's just, you know. Well, that's why we're tired at the end of the day, you know? Yeah. It, th- I mean, that all of it is so deliberate. And that's what, like, th- the reason why the, the plants of power are, are illegal. The reason why we just, we walk through a city and why are we so exhausted? Why are we so exhausted? Because everywhere you turn, you're being told to consume. Oh, I'm sorry. This could be like a whole, not yeah. a <laughs> it's really easy to get into. Yeah. Yeah. And, but I, I think at the core of this is this really profound and simple idea that I've never actually come to before, which is public art and art in general is really such a so unique in that it is visual stimulus that's not an advertisement absolutely and, and it's so <laughs> rare you know it's outside of nature which of course is is its is its own visual stimulus that's not an advertisement but in terms of something human made that mm-hmm. you look at that carries a, a message or an intuition or a stimulus, it's, it's, wow. Like, I can't believe I've never thought of that before <laughs> until this moment. But it, I, that seems really significant. And part of the reason why um, it's so important to have art in your life. It's so important. You know, when, one of my favorite, my, I, I particularly enjoy, um, hitting up abandoned spots 
they're fun. You know, the, for some reason, humans just have a fascination with ruins and abandoned mm-hmm. places. It mm-hmm. reminds us of death and, you know, our own eventual annihilation, uh, which are you know, fascinating themes throughout human history. But my my hope for for interventions within an urban environment is that, you know, even if it doesn't have a message or it's if it's polit- if it's political or whatever even if it's just for the sake of being pretty my hope is that it provides sort of a a break from the normal programming mm-hmm. that even just like a, a fucking space to breathe mm-hmm. you know in in this super um oppressive system that we live in it's it's a respite i think that a lot of people aren't even aware that they need because you forget what it's like to be relaxed when you're stressed out all the time. Um, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's it's something similar for people who are cut off from art and cut off from nature. They're mm. just in this heightened state of anxiety and consumerism and mm. image and greed. And it's just... we're so we're so dumb sometimes like we're humans are so dumb and so smart at the same time but it's we can just so easily forget what what it actually is just to be a human without all of those trappings I agree with you and and I think I think it's important to remember that that we are we are smart we're divine we are Mm -hmm. expressions of the entire cosmos you know what is more complex complicated and beautiful than that but it does not serve the powers to be if you recognize that it does not serve them if you recognize that you that your daily life isn't supposed to be caught up in the grind and because the system is so perfectly tuned and cultivated we can be dumb and we can make dumb decisions and we can make decisions that are are hurtful to ourselves to others and to the environment because that is what makes money Mm -hmm. like self self self-care doesn't make money if we all if we all loved each ourselves then there would not be the surplus of money and greed just flowing the way it is Mm -hmm. we can only meet people with love at the level that we have given ourselves. We forget, and that's that's another reason why I like, why I am drawn to, to soul language, to this art made by indigenous cultures who are not so far removed from source, because we forget, we forget that we are stardust. Mm-hmm. And truly, and not just like, not just saying it like, oh, you're stars, like, it's like, we are really, truly from, <laughs> We are all the same, made out of the same thing, and that same thing is the cosmos. And man, we've forgotten. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you can't, um, you cannot make money selling things to people who already know that they're whole. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. to put it bluntly, um, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I feel like there's like that I should I should wrap up but maybe just yeah just to say that I'm so grateful that you are out there making work about this and doing it so beautifully and articulately and with such heart and I Thank feel you so much I feel really honored and happy that I got to share a a little piece of of what you're doing with people today. So thank you so much. Thank you. The honor is mine, truly. I I feel so happy to talk to you. I would love if you could tell people if they want to follow your your work and your travels and your philosophies. Where where can they do that? Uh, So I don't have a website, but I do have an Instagram account and you can follow me at kill.joy.mall um i'll be there yeah and um i think it would be remiss not to put the plug in that um while you get everything that we've talked about as well you may also sometimes get excessive 
exceptionally cute pictures of an exceptionally cute dog named Spencer as well. <laughs> so just to get a little bit of extra joy in your life, um, that is also, there's nothing like a smiling corgi face. So. <laughs> oh, see, you opened up another can. <laughs> but yes, Spencer is my 12-year-old little man. Yeah. So I think that that's um, more than enough reason to, to, to follow. So I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And um, thank you again, Joy. Thanks, Miranda. Well, that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Erica Walker. Erica has been on my wish list since pretty much day one. And she does not disappoint. We'll talk about lithography, class dynamics, and the importance of being in your body. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing help from Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.